0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. So if you would take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17 for this message entitled, Turn to God before it's too late. Turn to God before it's too late. A message like this might seem a little odd given to a congregation of worshipers who've gathered together. Because one might assume, well, don't we all believe? Haven't we all turned to God? Well, I pray that that's true of you. But it's also true that whenever the people come together to worship God, there's always those who don't know God or who are self-deceived in the fact or the idea that they know God. As well, we always need to be equipped and think through the gospel so that we can grow in our understanding to then share it and proclaim it to others in our lives. So I pray that this message would be a blessing uh, to you. If you're there, follow along as I read. We're, our, the text for today is going to be verses 22 to 34, which is Paul's sermon in Athens, uh, which is a place where every God was worshiped except for the one true and living God. But for the sake of context, I'm going to start reading in verse 16, and then we'll go through to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what does this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children." Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men, to men, that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the In righteousness, he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, and others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder, what God do you worship? For some, that's easy to answer. Many of us, hopefully, will say, I worship the God of the Bible. Some might say, I worship the God of Israel the Jews would say. I worship the, the God Allah, Muslims would say. I worship Brahman, ultimate oneness, Hindus might say. Other, Islam, other religions, of course, have their own gods or their own deities or their own conception of, of personalities. For others, that question is harder to answer. For example, for New Age spiritualists or Buddhists who don't worship a deity, they really don't have any being that they worship, and so the, they end up worshiping themselves. Atheists, of course, would deny the existence of any kind of spiritual realm, and so that means they worship themselves also. And then there's agnostics who aren't f- so foolish to deny the existence of God, but in their pride and apathy, they too end up worshiping themselves. In the most general terms, your God is your ultimate source of meaning, identity, and purpose. Your God is where you look in times of trouble. It's your protection in times of danger. Your God is your ultimate source of food, shelter, children, security, work, success, money. Your God is is where you turn when you have nowhere else to turn. And many times, your God is the first place you turn. In our society, we don't see very many traditional idols around, but most of the idols our society bows down to look different. Some who worship comfort, for example, They bow down to the idols of drugs and alcohol. Those who worship success, their their idols look a lot like cars or houses or possessions that they trust in to bring them happiness. Those who worship relationships bow down to the idol of a spouse or a girlfriend or boyfriend or others in their lives who they believe will bring them fulfillment and satisfaction. Still others bow down to pleasure, and they engage in ritual acts to, uh, to get as much pleasure and delight in their life. So some might be thrill seekers. They just want to experience the adrenaline pumping through their blood, thinking that that's what will give them satisfaction. We could identify power, prestige, health, sports, any other idol that is rampant in our society. We live for those things. We we give our money to those things thinking they will repay us with satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning and purpose. We get angry when our gods are insulted, like our sports teams. Uh, We get depressed when they fail us. Now, we don't think of ourselves as overly religious in our society some would have even deny religiosity altogether, but the reality is every person is a priest in their own religion. Paul Tripp said it well when he said, an idol of the heart is anything that rules me other than God. As worshiping beings, human beings always worship someone or some things. This is not a situation where some people worship and some people don't. If God isn't ruling my heart, someone or something will. It it is the way we were made, unquote. And so I ask again, what, what God or what gods do you worship? Whatever the answer is, hear this. If your God is not the one true and living God, the God who has revealed himself through the prophets of old, as recorded in the scripture, and who has spoken to us through Jesus Christ, then your God is no better than the gods of stone and gold and silver. And those gods, Psalm 115 says, have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And then it says, those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Those who worship false gods degenerate into blind, deaf, and mute people who will ultimately be destroyed in the judgment. This sermon in Acts 17 is preached to a people just like us, and it calls us to come to grips with our false conceptions of God and to know the truth about God. And it tells us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we just sung about, is the very fact that proves not only who God is, but that he will judge us for our idolatry. There is no greater truth that we can give our attention to this morning. And so I would encourage you and urge you to sit up and pay attention to what the word of God has to say. In verses 16 to 21 of Acts 17, we get the context of Paul's sermon. He's in Athens, that center of philosophical and religious and cultural life in ancient times. Centuries earlier, it was the home of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, as well as being the birthplace of Epicurean and Stoic philosophy, which he mentions in the passage. Athens was to philosophy what religion, or excuse me, what Nashville is to country music or what Hollywood is to movies. The Rome conquered Athens in 146 BC. Rome gave Athens the special freedom to maintain its identity and heritage as the center of Greek culture and religion. This explains why in verse 16, Paul says that he observed that the city was full of idols. And really, you could translate that, that the city itself was submerged in in idols. These idols were not of one deity or some small group of deities. These idols were of every deity. And in the midst of the hundreds of religions that were practiced there, there were philosophies. And named here are the Epicurean and Stoic philosophies. Epicureans didn't believe in a god, but rather divine pleasure as the ultimate thing. So some of them lived in that constant pursuit of pleasure by whatever means they could achieve it. Others lived by trying to remove any pain or any discomfort from their lives. And then there were the Stoics who rejected polytheism and instead embraced pantheism, which means that everything is God. And so they sought to live in harmony with nature and practiced self-discipline. Verse 18 there says that the Epicureans and the Stoics were the two primary schools of philosophy that Paul encountered and engaged with in the marketplace. And it was his proclamation of the gospel, that is the truth about the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that raised their eyebrows and drew their curiosity. And so they took Paul to the Areopagus, which was the place where philosophies and religions were formally discussed and debated and assessed. And they said to him in verses 19 and 20, May we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming? For you are bringing strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. They say, we want to know this new teaching, and we want to know what it means. Paul's response, which is this sermon recorded in verses 22 to 31, Paul's response is his answer to those two questions. And so, using the language of their questions, we can divide his sermon into two parts. The first part is, know the true God. And the second part, know what God demands. They wanted to know this new teaching and what it means, and Here it is. Know the true God and know what God demands. Consider the first. Know the true God. Look again at verses 22 and 23. Paul says, So Paul uh, stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with its inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim To you. Records indicate that it was against the rules of the Areopagus for speakers to pander to the audience. So when Paul says here that they are very religious in all respects, uh, this is more tongue in cheek, if not directly offensive to these Athenians. The, The preponderance of idols demonstrated a lack of conviction of that society. Yes, they had religious tolerance, but in their religious tolerance, they lacked conviction. In that environment, to point out their religiosity was to say that they were undevoted to any particular god. Now, obviously, that wouldn't apply to every individual. There would be those who, on their own, in their own heart and life, they would worship some, some god in a devoted way. But as a culture, as a society, they lacked the conviction to reject any religion or any philosophy out of fear that they might upset some God they didn't know about. You know, they were not like the Athenians, or excuse me, the Ephesians who worshiped Athena. If I'm remembering, that's not the right God name. Um, but the Ephesians worshiped one particular God as a society. Well, the Athenians were fearful of what they didn't know. They thought, let's worship every god and hopefully we don't miss any. And that's proven by the fact that Paul found that altar that said to the unknown god. It seemed that they believed that uh, if they worshiped a god, even in their ignorance, that that god would at least accept them because they tried. Interestingly, other ancient records record that there were many altars to unknown gods. So, this particular altar was just one of many attempts on the, the part of the Athenians to address gods that they didn't know. As a society of polytheists, that is, there are many gods, and pantheists, that everything is God, they were driven by fear and ignorance. Every religion makes its claims. Every philosopher spouts his ideas. But who's to say who's right? Can anyone declare to have definitive knowledge of God? Can anyone say what I'm saying is true and everything else is false? Well, the Athenian culture and our culture today would say no. No one can know what is absolutely true. No one can say that that what I'm saying is right and what you're saying is wrong. They would say exactly what people say today. I have my truth. You have your truth. Just, we can all believe whatever we want to believe. It's all equally valid. But Paul here would say, yes, there is definitive truth of God. And yes, we can know which is right and which are wrong. Now, notice what he says there at the end of verse 23. He says, Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. In saying this, Paul does not equate the true God with that idol to an unknown God. Rather, grammatically, when he says what you worship, that's referring not to the idol itself, that he's going to give them a new label to stick on them, but rather it's referring to the fact, uh, that everything that they worship in ignorance is what he is proclaiming to them as the true God. He, he's going to clear up that ignorance in their life. What they've lacked in substance, what they've lacked in reality, he's not going to fill in the gaps so they can reject all of the, what's false and worship that which is true. Now, specifically what he declares in the following verses is that God reigns. And that God sustains, and that God ordains. Those are three truths that Paul declares about the one true living God, that He reigns, that he ordains, that He sustains, and that He ordains. In saying what he says, he proclaims the transcendence of God, that is that God is above and outside of his creation. But he also affirms the imminence of God, that God is involved in his creation. And we'll see that even though Paul does not not quote scripture directly, everything he says is founded in the scripture itself. Look at verse 24 to see that God reigns. He says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. As Paul looks around the city of idols and temples and altars, he declares that the true God does not dwell in temples made with hands. He is not constrained by time and space such that he has to take up residence in one place or another as as though he can be confined where people have to come and visit him. No, the true God cannot be controlled by mankind. Why? Because he made the world and all things in it. You know Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made the earth on which we dwell. He made the sun and the moon which give their light. He made the uncountable galaxies with their billions of stars and planets in the universe. The more technology we have, it just shows how small we are as human beings in this universe. And so how silly it is for us to think that God would be contained within one galaxy, in one solar system, on one planet, in one continent, in one city, inside one building. Now the Lord says in Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I might rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being. Someone might say, didn't the Lord instruct the Jews to build a tabernacle? (laughs) And didn't Solomon build a beautiful temple for the Lord? Yes, but even Solomon at the dedication of the temple said this, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. The, the tabernacle and then later the temple were the center of Israel's worship, not because God himself was contained in that place, as though God has boundaries, but rather because the people needed boundaries. They needed a place so that they wouldn't fall and devolve into self-defined religion. Know how he concludes or, or the conclusion that he makes about the fact that God is the creator there in verse 34, or 24. He says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. As creator, God is the rightful sovereign over creation. If you think of it this way, God has the sole intellectual and property rights to all that he has made. He made it so it belongs to him and he alone has the ownership and authority to do according to his will, whatever he wants to do, which is another way of saying he reigns. He reigns over all. Psalm 24, one says, "The the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Psalm 89 says, the heavens are yours, the earth are yours also. The world and all it contains, you have founded them, the north and the south. You created them. Everything belongs to God because everything was created by God. And as a result, he reigns and he exercises his sovereign rule. Isaiah 45 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. The Lord himself takes responsibility for everything that happens. So my friends, make no mistake of who is in charge of the universe. The Lord reigns, it says in Psalm 93. The Lord reigns, we're told in Psalm 96. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, Psalm 97 says. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble says Psalm 99. So my friends, there there is no God of war. There is no God of rain. There is no God of harvest. There is no God of fertility or any other God who reigns over anything. There is only one true and living God and he reigns over everything. Now look at verse 25 to see that God not only reigns, he sustains. Paul says, nor is he served By human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. It's obvious that the idols of men need to be served. The most comical example in Scripture is Dagon, the God of the Philistines, who, when they had brought the Ark of the Lord, which they captured from the Israelites, they brought it into Dagon's temple, and the next day they came in, and Dagon had fallen down before. The tabernacle as if to worship the, the one true and living God. And so what happened? Well, they, Dagon couldn't get up and come back to his proper position. No, he needed the hands of men to put him up. And then they, the next day they found him again. And this time his head was cut off and his hands were were broken off. And so he couldn't fix himself. So he needed people to come fix him and put him back together. False gods need to be served by men. They Men bring food to feed their gods. But because their gods can't eat anything, the men either need to throw it away or eat it themselves. They have hands and feet, but they can't move. And so their worshipers need to come and clean them off and dust them and and do maintenance on them. That's not true of God. The true God does not need anything. He doesn't need to be served. He does not need anything. To eat. He doesn't need to be dusted off or picked up and moved around. As the infinite, eternal God, there is nothing in this finite, temporary world that the true God needs. In fact, in Psalm 50, the Lord declares, I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of male goats? In that psalm, he's explaining that the purpose of the sacrifices are not to feed God as though he needed food, but rather to demonstrate obedience and thanksgiving on the part of the worshiper. The true God who transcends creation doesn't need anything from his creation. On the contrary, he is the one who sustains his creation. Again, he said, he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. The scripture says that the very fabric of the universe is held together by the power of God. Hebrews 1, 2 says that the world is upheld by the word of the power of Christ. Though the Lord did indeed create the natural laws which which sustain the universe in a sense. The reality is it's God himself who sustains those natural laws and he will sustain them until he chooses to do away with this universe. But the day will come when God, God's will will be to no longer sustain this planet or this universe and all those natural laws will unravel and the heavens and the earth will be destroyed And in its place, Scripture says, he will create a new heavens and a new earth with different laws, as indicated by the fact that in the eternal state, there will be no sun, there will be no night. God will dwell with his people, and there will be no sleep. So God sustains the universe, and he also sustains life. Speaking of creatures, Psalm 104 says, They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created. God sustains life. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Elsewhere, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Again, God sustains life. That's just a a small sampling of the many passages of Scripture that teaches that God is the source of life. He gives life to every creature, and when he chooses, he takes it away. My friends, your heart is beating right now, not because of anything that you're doing, but because God is sustaining your heart. You've been sitting here inhaling and exhaling without thinking about it, not because of anything that's in you, but because God himself is sustaining your life and your breath. You're here warm and well-fed because God has given you clothing and food. He's given you a mind that can reason, and eyes that can see, and ears that can hear, and a body that can move. All that you have is from Him. Whatever you've accomplished, whatever you've accumulated, whatever health you have, you, you can do nothing on your own. Scripture says, what do we have that we have not first been given? God is sustaining our life moment by moment by moment. So don't ever think that God needs something from you, because the reality is you need everything from God. Don't ever think that God owes you something, because he doesn't owe you anything. You owe God everything. Romans eleven thirty four 34 to 36 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has first given to him, that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So my friends, know that the true God reigns. He sustains. And third, that he ordains. Look at verses 26 to 28. He ordains. Paul says, And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children." As the Lord of heaven and earth, he not only sustains his creation, but he ordains the movement of mankind and the purpose for which people exist. Note how Paul unapologetically declares the straightforward understanding of Genesis 1 and 2 by saying that God created from one man every nation of mankind. This stands in contrast not only to the modern theory of evolution, but also to the ancient stories of how mankind came to be. The Greeks were like many other nations, they were racists. And they thought they were a superior race as Greeks than every other race, whom they called barbarians. But here, Paul says that there is one human race because. We all came from one and the same man, Adam, whom God created. And then he says to them that he made them to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. You recall that when Noah and his family came out of the ark in Genesis 9, God gave them the same mandate that he had given Adam and Eve, namely to multiply and spread throughout the earth. And then in Genesis Genesis 11, we learned that mankind rebelled against that mandate and they all stayed together and said, let's make a name for ourselves and build a tower. So what did God do? He confused their language and he forced them to spread all over the earth. And so the scripture says, uh, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So God not only ordains the, the spread and location of man, but he also spread or excuse me he also ordains the rise and fall of nations in daniel 2 you might recall that nebuchadnezzar king of babylon had a dream which daniel interpreted and in that dream the lord presented to nebuchadnezzar the future of nations on the earth in that dream the lord prophesied the rise and fall of babylon medo persia greece and Rome, in some, some of those cases, centuries before those nations existed. And so before those kingdoms came into existence, their rise and fall were ordained by God. It's this very reality that separates the Lord from all of the false gods. Isaiah 46, 9-11, the Lord says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a a bird of prey from the east and a man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Well, what is God's purpose in the creation of of man, and in ordaining the history of man. Paul says it there in verse 27. He says that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Earlier we saw the transcendence of God, that that he is above and outside his creation as the creator and sustainer and ordainer of all things. Here we see that he is Involved in his creation, he is imminent in his creation, such that we can now search for him and find him. The Lord made himself known to all mankind, Romans 1 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. As creatures, we know that there must be a creator. It would be irrational in this vastly complex world that's particularly designed for the sustaining of human life and discovery. It's impossible that that would all happen by accident. And so though God revealed himself to Adam and Eve and their descendants, he walked with them and he talked with them, Yet they rejected him. And ever since, mankind has been feeling around in the darkness, looking for a God that they're willing to accept, trying to find meaning and purpose beyond themselves. All the while, the, the Creator, the one true and living God, continues to present Himself with an open invitation. Isaiah called out, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The Lord himself says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God ordains the movements and the purpose of mankind. He he doesn't exist for us, but rather we exist for him. Notice what Paul says there in verse 28. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. If you have a New American Standard, it doesn't show it there, but there's actually two quotes there, not one. The first is that first phrase, for in him we live and move and have our being or or exist. And the second quote is, for we also are his children. If you're familiar with Paul's letter to Titus, where Paul refers to uh, the Cretan church or the Cretan people uh, as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That statement is a quote from Epimenides, who is a a Cretan philosopher from centuries before. The statement here in verse 28, for in him we live, live and move and exist, is from the same poem of Epimenides that Paul quotes in Titus 1. The second statement, therefore, we also are his children, is by Erratus, a quote, a poet from Cilicia, where Paul grew up uh, before he was saved. And both poets lived hundreds of years earlier. So by this point, they were classics, if you will, uh, in the Greek culture. And also, both of those poems were written about Zeus. They, They were poems about the the God that the Greeks worshipped, Zeus. They were not at all about the God of the Bible. So why does Paul quote a false religion uh, that speaks about God? Well, he quotes them not because they speak authoritatively about God, but because they demonstrate that mankind has indeed been groping for God. That they recognize that we are not self-made creatures, that we have been made by something beyond ourselves. We are the product of God's creation. As confused as they were about who that true God was, they understood they were products. And in that sense, we indeed are all God's children. And as children, we are dependent on God for all things. My friends, these are the truths about God that Paul declares and in which in which you need to know God reigns God sustains and God ordains. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the lord of all the supplier of all that we need and he made you to seek him. And so we turn the corner then to the second main point that Paul makes here and that is know God's demands. Know God's demands. It's not enough to just know these truths about God. These truths have implications. They place demands on our life. And in this public proclamation of the true God, Paul gives three commands. First, know God rightly. Know God rightly. Second, turn to God. And third, prepare for judgment. Consider the first, know God Rightly. Look at verse 29. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Since God is who He is, and since we are His creatures, we ought to think of God rightly. Specifically, what Paul highlights here is that if God is the transcendent creator of everything and we are the products of his creation. It is insanity to think that the very nature of God can be accurately reflected in idols of gold or silver or stone or really anything else in all creation. Nothing can capture the essence of who God is. Now we know the Ten Commandments of which the Lord gave his people and the first two are these. You shall have no other gods before me and second, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Why does our God care so much that we not make a physical representation of him? It is because... Any physical representation of God is, by definition, a misrepresentation of Him. God is spirit, and anything that we visualize that God looks like is to misunderstand and misrepresent Him. Now, of course, our pluralistic society says, well, it doesn't really matter what you think about God. It doesn't matter who your God is. As long as you're sincere, that's all God cares about. And we need to raise our hands and say, wait wait, wait a minute. Our culture can't stand misgendering someone or using the wrong pronouns. And they think the God of the universe doesn't care that we accurately represent him. No, God does care what we think about him. To think wrongly about him is to diminish his glory and his majesty. And actually, it is to deny his very existence and instead believe in a false God that does not exist. And so God wants you to know him rightly. And so he's given us his word, the Bible, so that you can know him. Well, consider the second demand he places on our life. Turn to God. Turn to God. Look at verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. The word repent means to to turn. Specifically, it means a change of mind. So clearly, when he says that all people are to repent, he means that they are to reject their false thoughts about God and instead embrace and believe what is true about God. Notice what... Paul says when he says, God has overlooked the times of ignorance. This is a brief way of saying that for much of human history, the Lord, as the Lord's plans unfolded, he, his interaction with humanity really focused on one people group, his chosen nation, Israel. And they were to be a city on a hill. They were to proclaim the glory of God. They were to reflect the majesty of God And the nations were to be drawn to that nation to worship the one true God. Problem is, they failed. And they exchanged the true God and they preferred to worship all of the gods of the nations around them. And in in doing that, they misrepresented God. Ezekiel often talks about how they profaned the name of the Lord because they set him aside and worshiped the false God. They proclaimed to the world that the true God is not worthy to be worshiped. And so, God has established a new people group, the church, whom he has commissioned not to be a city on a hill, but rather to be ambassadors to go throughout the world proclaiming who this God is. And that's what Paul does here. Having heard the testimony of the true God from Paul's lips, the Athenians and you as well are commanded by God to turn to this true God, to repent of any idolatry that's in your heart and instead to worship the one true and living God. This is not a suggestion. This is not a recommendation. This is not a truth claim that you can set aside or, or set alongside other truth claims. This is a command. And the word declaring here is uh, usually translated as command or order in the New Testament. Now, why should you obey this command? Well, it's because of the third demand that God places on your life, and that is prepare for judgment. Judgment. Not only should you think of God rightly, not only should you turn to him, but you should uh, prepare for judgment. Look at verses 30 and 31. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. All people everywhere should repent because God will judge the world in righteousness. Here we see that the true God is righteous. That is to say that it is his nature to do what is right and what is just. And a righteous and just God cannot overlook injustice and wrongs forever. He might overlook them for a time in exercise of patience But the day will come when his justice will be executed on the earth. And everyone who does not turn from their idols to God will find themselves standing before the judge who knows everything they've done, everything they've said, and everything they've thought. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to do. Notice that Paul does not simply say that judgment is coming. No, he says that God has fixed a day. That is to say that there is a day on God's calendar that's marked and circled. And no one can escape that day. All of history is moving toward that day. Every second that passes by, human history is marching closer to that day. Every day that you wake up is a day that you are one day closer To judgment. As sure as the sun rises and the sun sets, the day of judgment is coming closer and closer. My friends, there will be no rescheduling of that day. There will be no delay. That day is fixed, it is certain. It's not penciled in, it's carved in. You won't sleep through your alarm that day. You won't be able to call in sick that day. If you do not turn to God, His angels will arraign you and bring you before Him with no defense. And there will be no jury to whom you can appeal. In the infinite mind of God, he has recorded every detail of every second of your life. And you will be judged summarily and quickly to the fullest extent of God's law. My friends, judgment is coming. There's only one way that you can prepare for it. And that is to turn to God. So if you have not done so before, turn to God today. Cast aside your wrong thoughts about God. Embrace what God has revealed in this passage and in the rest of Scripture. Reject the idea that he doesn't exist or that some false God exists in his place. Discard the notion that there is no judgment coming or that the judge himself is unjust that he would let you in despite your sin. But someone might say, uh, what if this life really is all there is? How do we know that there is such a God who will judge? Who's to say that that judgment will actually come? That this is the right God and all the others are wrong? How, How can we know that this is all true? Well, that's a good question. That's really a most important question because none of it matters if it's not true. Well, here's the answer. Look at verse 31. He's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You can be certain that judgment is coming because Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is proof from God himself that the God of the Bible is the one true and living God. You know, some religions teach that there's annihilation after death, that you just go out of existence. Here's the problem there are people who have died, been dead for days, and then rose again from the dead. In John 11, Jesus raised Lazarus, who had been dead for four days. And Jesus himself was raised from the dead after three days. If annihilationism was true, there would be no possibility for anyone to be raised from the dead. So clearly, that is false. Most religions teach that there is some kind of afterlife, whether they teach that you just become part of some amorphous spiritual Realm, or you are reincarnated into some other being here on the earth, or there's some kind of paradise. Most inventors of religion affirm that there's something that happens to you after you die and you live on in some form or another. Here's the problem none of those religions have ever proved it, none of them have ever died, gone through that experience, and then come back to say, I was right, it's true. Not only that, none of them have ever claimed to have done that. No one's ever said, yeah, our our spiritual leader died and he went and saw these things and then he came back from the dead. No one has ever even tried to do that. Only the God of the Bible, only the one true and living God who has revealed himself throughout history and mankind, or to mankind by performing miracles and sending prophets and predicting the future. Only he has furnished proof by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, one would be right to ask, how how does raising Jesus from the dead prove all of that? Well, it's simple. Throughout those last three years of his life, when Jesus was ministering and teaching, uh, he taught about God from the Old Testament, And his life, death, and resurrection fulfilled hundreds of prophecies that were in the Old Testament. He declared that he himself was the Son of God and thereby claiming to have the very nature of God. And he proclaimed that not only is judgment coming, but that he himself would be the one who would judge. He said in John 5, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, some to a resurrection of life and others to a resurrection of judgment. Now, if Jesus had said those words and then died, never to be seen or heard from again, we would be right to be skeptical of its truth. But that's not what happened. Jesus died, and three days later, the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And that's important because the true God would not raise a false prophet who misrepresented him from the dead. But God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, validating that Jesus is, in fact, who he claimed to be, and that everything that he said was, in fact, true. He demonstrated by raising Christ that he approved of the Son and all that he taught. And showing proof beyond doubt that Jesus, of what Jesus said, so it will happen. Jesus will be the judge of all. Now you see there in verses 32 to 34, the responses. There's three different responses to the message that Paul preached. It says now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some of them, some of the men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Those three responses are some mocked, some were intrigued and wanted to hear more. And some, a few, believed. How will you respond today? Will you continue to mock this God who has made the world and all things in it, who sustains your life and is bringing judgment? Will you consider these things as interesting? Perhaps there's true. You want to know more about it. Or will you believe You've heard today who the true God is, that he reigns over all. He is the creator of all things. He sustains all things, and he ordains all things. There is no other God like him. There is no God besides him. He is your creator and Lord and provider. And you've heard the demands that he places on your life, that you must set aside all your false ideas about who God is, And come to know him rightly and then turn to him in worship and praise. And you must prepare for judgment because if you have not turned to God, you will be judged. But if you do turn to God, there is forgiveness to be found as a result of the resurrection and the death and resurrection of Christ. Well, may it be true of everyone here today, what was true of the Thessalonican church. Thessalonia was a church where Paul had preached perhaps a similar message to this just a few weeks earlier, and when he wrote to them years later, he said this to them, you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Jesus will either be your judge or he will be your rescuer from the judgment. Which will he be for you? Let's pray. Our Father, as we are confronted with these truths, those who believe, are encouraged because we're reminded of who you are, that you are God overall. That we need not fear anything in this life because you are in control. Nothing is outside of your control. Nothing takes place apart from what you have ordained. And we know from your word that all that you ordain is for your glory and our good. And we believe you because you have granted us eyes to see And you have given us the gift of faith and repentance. And you've given us life. And so we worship you as the one true and living God. I pray for those of us who have believed, Lord, that you would give us a heart that is seeking to proclaim you to those around us. Maybe that's with our kids. To be faithful to teach our kids about the one true and living God. Maybe that's with our coworkers or other family members or people in our community that we interact with. Lord, I pray that Cascades Bible Church would be a church that is fulfilling that work as ambassadors and proclaiming Christ, not just on Sunday mornings, but with every opportunity they have. Lord, I pray for those in this room who secretly or maybe even openly have rejected you. That they've sat here Sunday after Sunday in apathy and unbelief. Lord, I pray you would open their eyes to see that judgment is coming. That they can't wait until life changes and it becomes important for them. Lord, cause them to believe in you today. Lord, let no one leave here today worshiping false gods but may all leave as worshipers of the one true and living God. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at CascadesBibleChurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.